0: This is the My Weight What to Know podcast, where we talk to medical experts about the latest research on weight management and how you can apply it to reaching your best weight. Tonight, we are debunking common myths about weight loss with weight management expert, Dr. Jesse Watkins. Dr. Watkins, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. So we are debunking common myths tonight, and probably the most persistent myth about weight management is that it's as simple as eating less and moving more. And that completely ignores the reality of brain chemistry, how our weight is regulated by our brain. Tell us about the role that brain chemistry plays when it comes to weight management.
1: Ansley, you're absolutely correct. It is weight regulation is so much more complicated than just calories in, calories out. So we know there's multiple pathways and areas of the brain that have intricate relationships that not only communicate with each other, but also with hormones from our gut. So one of these areas is kind of the homeostatic area that controls our basic need for calories for energy needs to function and survive. So homeostatic eating is controlled by the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus is kind of what I sort of consider as like this thermostat that's in the background that's controlling our appetite, our weight regulation and your metabolism without you even realizing it. So it's all subconscious. Another area is called the hedonic system. So this is the mesolimbic system. It's located above the brainstem and underneath the cerebral cortex. And the neurons in this area or this network actually release dopamine. So the hedonic system is actually associated with the liking for food, the wanting for food, and then that reward you get from eating delicious foods. And that's kind of that feel-good hormone that gives you that pleasure and satisfaction. And there's actually another area of the brain called the prefrontal cortex. So this is more associated with executive function and impulse control. And interestingly enough, in patients with larger bodies or living in larger bodies with higher BMI, they've actually shown there is some impairment in cortical decision-making when it comes to, say, food choices or weighing short-term reward versus long-term benefits of certain food choices.
0: Sometimes people, I think, feel guilty about the cravings that they have or that they're, you know, that they're very, very strong. But what I hear you saying is that a lot of that is determined by our biology.
1: Absolutely. So. Dopamine is that feel-good hormone, and we know that it's released when we go shopping or exercise and when we eat delicious foods. And we also know that other addictive substances like heroin and cocaine light up that area, exact same area in the brain to give that rush of dopamine. Although sugar addiction is currently being debated um, as a concept in medicine, interestingly enough, lab rats, when given the option will actually preferentially choose to consume sugar over other substances like nicotine and cocaine, which is really fascinating. And we also know that these dopamine receptors, the concentration of them in patients in larger bodies is actually lower. So what that means is patients with higher BMI actually would have to consume way more of a substance like sugar in order to, to sort of get the same pleasurable response as someone in a leaner body. And there's actually another hormone that can impact our, our cravings and our urges in the brain and in our gut. And that's cortisol. So cortisol is a hormone that we all associate with stress. It's that it's released for fight or flight. You know, when you're encountering a saber tooth tiger or acute stressor, the problem is with chronic stress that mobilized energy is actually not burned off because we're not actually usually exercising a great deal of chronic stress. And so that cortisol actually makes us crave foods that are really high in calories so that we get extra energy, but we're not burning it off. And these foods are all the fun stuff, fatty foods, salty foods, and sugary foods. And so oftentimes when we're stressed over time, we're drawn to food choices that may not actually be serving our health. And we also get that dopamine rush from those foods. So it can help actually deal with other uncomfortable emotions like loneliness, and boredom, which we certainly saw during the pandemic.
0: Well, that was my next question for you. We know so many people beat themselves up about emotional eating and eating that they may do where they're, when they're bored or sad. But what I hear you saying is that, uh, you know, our brain chemistry is driving a lot of that.
1: Your brain recognizes that you're having a distressing emotion, and it's trying to take care of you. It's trying to um, basically make you feel better and provide comfort, and sometimes food can do that for us despite the long-term consequences of that.
0: Dr. Watkins, a common myth is that our hormones affect our weight only when we're going through menopause or if we have thyroid issues. But you were talking earlier about the gut hormones that can play a role in regulating our weight. Tell us about how that works. So you're absolutely correct a lot of my
1: patients um, are under the impression that you know changes like you mentioned puberty childbirth is a big one um, menopause and thyroid hormones are the main drivers or players and they certainly do have an impact on our weight But there's actually over 30 hormones that actually regulate appetite and weight and so as you start to lose weight first of all weight loss is really hard and it's it takes a lot of effort and so your brain basically assumes This must be involuntary. Why would anyone put themselves through this? So this is probably a state of famine where our body doesn't have access to food. So it actually tries to help you by getting your weight back up to a higher level so that if there's another famine, you'll have excess energy stores to rely on and you won't perish. And so how it does this is one way it increases the release of ghrelin from your stomach. And ghrelin is that classic hunger hormone when you feel your your hunger pains and your stomach's gurgling and it tells your brain, go out, seek food, eat, and also let's decrease how many calories we burn just in case. And so that is also associated with changes of another hormone called leptin. So leptin basically is released by the adipose tissue or fat cells in our body. And it sort of tells the brain how much energy stores we have on board in our body. So as you start to lose weight, leptin levels decrease. And again, this signals to the hypothalamus, we should probably eat more and burn fewer calories. So this also contributes to weight regain. Now, you mentioned the thyroid, and I would actually like to talk about that because most people are under the impression that low thyroid causes excess weight. And absolutely, that's one of the symptoms of hypothyroidism. But what's fascinating is that actually experiencing the disease of obesity can cause thyroid problems. So I actually have a lot of patients where as they start to lose weight, we actually have to really come down on their Synthroid or their thyroid replacement dose. And I've actually had patients be able to come off their thyroid replacement completely just from weight loss
0: alone. Wow, that's very interesting. I'd really never heard about that connection between thyroid and obesity. So another very pervasive myth about weight loss, and I'm sure you've heard this one plenty, is that it's just about willpower. If I have enough willpower, I'll be able to succeed. And everything you were just sharing about hormones really suggests it's about a lot much more than willpower. How do you encourage the people you work with to think about the role of willpower?
1: Absolutely. So when I first meet a patient at their first consult, I explain the stuff that we've talked about today, the hormonal changes of weight loss and gain, and I really try to emphasize that obesity is a chronic, complex, genetic, and hormonal disease. And I explain it as, basically, your genes and your hormones predispose you to be a certain weight in the environment that you're in, and that environment doesn't just include diet and exercise. It includes other things like sleep, stress, uh, medications that you've been on, and even we're looking at bacteria in your gut now as a, as a role player. And oftentimes this is the first time patients have ever heard of this concept and they're they're usually very surprised when I explain it this way. And I really also try to emphasize that there is no amount of willpower that can override that hormonal starvation reflex that's happening. So, Unfortunately, that can make people feel pretty defeated and overwhelmed because they kind of think, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to do then if this is all kind of biology? And so I really try to offer them reassurance that understanding the science and biology of obesity actually gives us the knowledge and the power to really develop tailored treatments to help people manage their weight and their health. So it's, it's actually a positive because essentially telling people to just have more willpower obviously isn't working.
0: If it was a matter of willpower, I think there are so many people who would have already you know, been successful and not be even thinking about this anymore.
1: And I tell people, if it was as simple as willpower, I wouldn't have a job, right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So Dr. Watkins, you've mentioned on social media that you've struggled with your own weight in the past. Tell us about how that experience helps you relate to your patients and understand a little bit more about what they might be going through.
1: Yeah. So... I'll tell you a little bit about my background. So I, I was actually trained as an anesthesiologist. And so about three years ago, um, I was very active. I was working more than full time and um, very busy. And um, I just uh, unfortunately suffered a, a neck injury one day that required urgent surgery and actually has led to chronic pain and um, and a disability. So I'm not able to be in the operating room anymore, but my doctors, in an attempt to help me with my pain, um, I helped help by prescribing many medications that at the time I didn't actually realize can cause significant weight gain. So I went from being very active um, and working full time to uh, being pretty much sedentary and um, not really being able to prepare my own meals because of my pain and on countless medications that actually uh, drove up my weight in a four month period to about 50 pounds over overweight. So this, understandably was very distressing because we actually know that um, carrying excess weight can actually increase inflammation in your body. So my chronic pain got worse over time, not better. And even just the simplest tasks started to get difficult. I actually developed joint pain in areas of my body that I hadn't experienced, like my ankles. Uh, It was difficult to tie my shoes. Um, Even just going for a walk with the dog, I was short of breath when I used to be extremely active before. And this was kind of like, I felt like I was living in somebody else's body. It just didn't feel like I belonged um, in my body. And so I really, when, when society or um, others mention that obesity is a lifestyle choice, I absolutely can attest that no one would choose to live in a body that's not serving them. And it really makes every aspect of your day more difficult. And so um, I can certainly understand how painful and challenging it is to live in a body that's not serving you.
0: So I think having that personal experience is so important because there's so much stigma associated with obesity, even among healthcare professionals. So how do you encourage your patients to fight back against the stigma they experience in the doctor's office or elsewhere?
1: I think the first step is really shifting from that um, shame and blame approach to obesity to understanding the biology and science of it. And so that's why I like telling, educating my patients about this because really, with this disease knowledge is power. And it's interesting that actually, um, when I went to medical school, I won't tell you when that was, um, obesity medicine was not a concept. It was not mentioned, it was never taught. And that's changing, it's shifting, the culture's changing now and it is part of the curriculum. But there may actually even be healthcare providers who do not understand the disease of obesity and the biological background to it. And so um, educating my patients uh, allows them to also have Uh, open conversations with their physicians at at subsequent visits about how it impacts their health and how it's not their fault. And what I also do is I really encourage my patients to have a kind and empathetic support system. This is really key. And it it doesn't have to be just close family and friends. It can be online uh, support groups. I have lots of patients who find Facebook groups they find really helpful. But at the same time, I, I really caution patients to watch who they follow on social media because there's a lot of toxic diet culture. There's a lot of quick fixes being tried to be sold to you. And there's a lot of people who claim to be experts and they're, they're actually spreading misinformation and, and bad advice. So you have to be careful who you, who you choose to follow.
0: That is so true. Let's talk a little bit about the weight loss clinics out there. Many of them have the word medical in the name of the clinic, but they promise quick weight loss and often a certain number of pounds lost in a certain time frame, definitely toxic diet culture. Are these approaches sustainable? So usually
1: not. Um, there's really no quick fix or miracle um, for that's going to reverse your genes and your hormones instantly. Um, and really, there's no guarantee of number of pounds lost in a certain time frame. I often tell my patients it takes as long as it takes. Everyone's a little bit different. Um, every body is different. So it, it, it's really false to promise a set uh, number on the scale to lose in a certain amount of time. And interestingly, um, in obesity medicine, we don't usually talk about you know losing this many pounds. We actually talk about percentage of body weight loss when we talk about health goals, because that's what tends to be more associated with improvement in other chronic diseases associated with obesity, like diabetes, high blood pressure, and sleep apnea. And so we really don't make any promises in terms of the set number on the scale, because also uh, what works for one person may not work for another. One person may be very happy at a certain weight and that serves them well, and another may be experiencing health challenges with that. So what we try to do for our patients is really focus on this concept of best weight. So your best weight is the weight where you're happy and healthy and you can maintain it long-term. Because it doesn't matter if I can get you down to really low weight through one of these other clinics, if you can't sustain it and it's really not compatible with daily life, you have to be able to go on vacation, go to a birthday party. And if it's super restrictive, like a lot of these plans, people regain the weight.
0: So how is what you do and what other obesity medicine physicians like you do, how is that different from kind of these like quick weight loss clinics?
1: I really think the most, the key centralized theme for how we approach uh, obesity is addressing the root biological cause, the genes and the hormones, as opposed to telling someone to just eat less and move more. Uh, We don't guilt or shame patients into um, uh, not having had success in the past with weight loss. And we we really do not push severe caloric restriction. So you can get something called metabolic adaptation. As you severely restrict your calories, your body assumes you're going to die of starvation. So it does everything it can to compensate by decreasing your basal metabolic rate so you don't basically perish. And so it doesn't last long-term because your body compensates for the severe caloric restriction. We also consider other medical contributors to weight gain. This can include your thyroid, this can include uh, poor sleep, stress levels, and other medications that you're on. A lot of us don't realize in medicine even that medications can have a considerable impact on weight gain and retention. And the last thing we tend not to do is set strict meal plans. So, strict meal plans for my patients don't work because I have a variety of different patients from different backgrounds. I have patients who like to do low carb, who like to intermittently fast. I have patients who are Muslim, kosher, vegetarian, lactose intolerant. So me dictating to them, eat this and don't eat that, isn't going to fit in with their lifestyle. And what we can offer is referrals or some of our clinics work in-house with registered dietitians who can provide healthy Options and way of uh, and approaches to eating, as opposed to a set meal plan.
0: That's fantastic. So, if, if someone watching is thinking, like, "Wow, you know, should I be reaching out to someone like Dr. Watkins or or another physician who specializes in weight management?" What would you say to them? What what questions should they ask themselves to figure out if meeting with a physician like you is the right next step?
1: I really think um, it is individual to the patient in terms of where they're where they're at in their journey, but. I usually, when I meet patients for the first time, it, it is extremely rare that it's the first time they've tried to lose weight. People come to me because they've tried over and over to lose weight, and because the other, those other restrictive programs don't work long-term. People tell me they've literally tried everything and they're desperate to try something that might work. Because as we go through these yo-yo cycling of, of, of dieting over time, each time you start to lose weight, your brain panics again, so it gets your weight back up. But then it says, "Hey, just for a little extra measure, let's bring a, a little higher than the last time." So as you yo-yo diet over time, your weight actually creeps up and up and up because each time your, your brain's doing a better, your body's doing a better job of getting your weight back up to where it feels it has excess energy stores. And again, I tell my patients, if these diets worked, I wouldn't have a job. So instead, physicians. Like my practice and other obesity medicine uh, physicians, we really approach it um, as a long-term scientific medical solution, not a quick fix. And we often will follow our patients for years um, if they feel the need. I have other patients where we'll work together for maybe say a year and they've got the tools and success they need to continue on uh, for weight loss maintenance. But again, it's, it's really based on the individual.
0: Dr. Watkins, we talked about stigma earlier. What are some of the questions a person should ask of a doctor's office before they go see them for obesity or weight management to ensure it's not a stigmatizing experience?
1: You know, that's a really excellent question. I think one of the most important things that I I really try to emphasize for patients is that it's okay to not wanna step on the scale. It's okay to not be weighed. You can say, no, thank you. And you can also say, I'd rather not see the number. If your physician feels the need to record it, you can just simply say, I'd rather not know. And that's, I think, really empowering for patients because they often feel like they're being shamed by being forced to step on a scale against their will. In terms of the actual clinic, um, it's really important to ask questions like, is there accessible parking and washrooms? Is the, are the door widths of the building up to code? So I live in a city that's quite old with a lot of heritage uh, buildings where they're not up to code. A lot of my patients rely on wheelchairs, so are there ramps, are there elevators, or do I have to use the stairs? Which floor of the building is the clinic on? Because if if it's not accessible, it might not be a good fit for you. You can also ask, are there bariatric-sized chairs in the waiting room and in the exam room? And is the waiting area private? And this one is a little more subtle, but I really encourage patients listen for stigmatizing language. So describing a patient as morbidly obese is not acceptable. We don't use language like that in obesity medicine and it frankly shouldn't be used at all. So that is a big piece and I think that it can be intimidating for patients because um, they they have been uh, really stigmatized so much of their life that it feels pervasive. And the last point I'll make is sometimes virtual care is a better option if you can't find a physical space that's a good fit for you.
0: So talking to a doctor about weight management can give us access to the treatments that have been proven to work over the long run. So Dr. Watkins, tell us, what are the medical treatments available currently for weight management?
1: There are medical treatments available in Canada. Um, So the Canadian Obesity Clinical Practice Guidelines, are found. the foundation is three pillars of obesity management, and these include medications or pharmacotherapy, behavioral interventions, and bariatric surgery. So in terms of medications, there are several medications available in Canada that are approved by Health Canada that can help patients um, not only lose weight but maintain it long-term, which is the key. And your obesity medicine specialist will help you find the right fit for you based on your needs and your other um, medical issues. The key with medications is that a lot of my patients, because of the stigma um, that they've suffered, they really feel like it's cheating if they take medications. They really beat themselves up. They say, I should be able to do this on my own. I shouldn't need them. And I remind them that that's like someone with asthma saying, I shouldn't really need my puffers or someone with high blood pressure saying, I should be able to just relax. So when I make that analogy, it often drives home the point that this is a medical issue that can can, uh, derive benefit from a medical intervention. From the behavioral standpoint, um, in patients who are struggling with binge eating disorder, or emotional eating, urges, or habitual eating, we, we do have interventions. These include, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy that can really help reshape um, their mindset and relationship with food. And the last one is bariatric surgery. So I myself don't work in a bariatric program. But I always offer bariatric surgery to patients who are interested in it or would really benefit from it. And then I just refer them to our local bariatric program if they wish.
0: So this is a question we've been asking in all of our interviews recently. What is the number one thing you wish people knew about weight loss? It's not your fault. And I will cheat by saying
1: a second thing. Um, You don't have to suffer alone. And there's clinics and physicians out there, like my clinic, Watkins Metabolic Clinic, that can offer you long-term, lifelong solutions.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Anything that we didn't cover that you would like the folks watching at home to know?
1: Actually, um, I would encourage patients to not be afraid to advocate for their own care. As I mentioned, obesity medicine is relatively new to the scene of medicine, and your physician may not even realize that there's clinics out there that can help you. So don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to request a referral and um, to seek out a clinic that's a good fit for you.
0: Dr. Watkins, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This has been an absolutely fantastic discussion.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Please stay safe and take good care. Good night.